Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I'm joined here by Alex. Hey, Hey, dude. Hey, Justin. And I'm also joined here by Noah. Hi. Hey, dude. I'm here. (laughs) We're all here. We're all very curt, apparently, um, just the way we like it. Yes. So... (laughs) For those who don't know, uh, on this podcast, we talk about a recent movie release, and then we usually talk about a larger topic related to said movie release. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, new comedy hit, Crazy Rich Asians, a uh, new film from John M. Chu, uh, has been doing pretty well. So we're going to be talking about that. It should be a lot of fun. But why don't we talk about what we've been watching? So, uh, Noah, we'll start with you this time. What's uh, What have you been watching lately? Well, I've been watching a lot. Um, my Over the past month, my film cut from the year has really shot up. <sighs> it's a hard pick, but I'd have to say that out of the, the most recent movies I've seen, my favorite is um, one that I saw last night uh, before seeing Crazy Rich Asians today, which is Spike Lee's uh, Black Klansman, which has already been getting a lot of buzz. Um, first off for being the latest work by Spike Lee, also being the fact that it is, um, based on the true story of a, the first black cop in the Colorado Springs police force who actually did manage to infiltrate the Klan and also like cozy up to David Duke himself way back in the earlier mid seventies and was able to expose, um, some high ranking members of the Klan and some actual plots to commit violence. So it's based on that true story. Uh, and it's also the film debut of Denzel Washington's son. And I love the movie. It's, I mean, like every Spike Lee movie, there's plenty of stuff about it that is probably going to be controversial for a lot of people. I can imagine a lot of people seeing the movie and finding it disjointed or too drawn out or too scattershot in terms of, okay, the movie is saying something about this. And now there's a scene talking about this. And now the movie jumps to talking about this topic. But I like that style in, in, in not just in Spike Lee movies. I like a lot of movies that do that, that have the courage to say, we're going to jump around and be about a lot of different things, and we're all just going to, like, somehow we'll tie it all together. Thematically, of course, it is extremely relevant, and, of course, being Spike Lee, he is very obvious in making it directly relevant to the political environment in the United States today, especially during the final segment of the movie, which I found brutally powerful. But it's also one of the funniest movies I've seen this year, And that really comes from how game the cast is in terms of making this story work. Their interactions with each other are just so enjoyable to watch, especially between uh, Washington and the other uh, cops in his precinct that he works with, especially his relationship with Adam Driver, who plays the white cop, who sort of doubles for him at actual clan events. And so the two of them combined pretend to be this one person trying to gain access to the Ku Klux Klan. I think it's one of the funniest performances of Adam Driver's that I've seen. And Adam Driver is rapidly becoming one of my favorite actors in the business today. I can imagine a lot of people like wanting to fight about this movie, but I loved, I loved everything about it. I mean, looking back now, I can, I can nitpick a few things about it, but it's, I, I found it to be damn near perfect. Um, and it's already going to be a heavy, heavy, heavy contender um, for my top 10 list when the year's over. Wow. Yeah, I I saw this movie too. I liked it a lot. I think I liked it a little bit less than Noah, but I do have really strong things to say about it. Um, 
I mostly just, the thing that I liked most about this movie, and Noah is right that there are definitely flaws, it is a bit messy at times, uh, there's definitely some major, like, clunky lines of dialogue where you just feel like Spike Lee is being like, hey, guys, look, this is what they thought in the past, but, oh, <laughs> now we know what really happened, and it's like, okay, we get it, um, but, uh, so that was a little heavy-handed at times. Uh, I think that the, he makes a lot of strange choices in regards to his female characters in this movie that I don't totally, uh, feel like I can support. But what I think is really good about the film is that there's this extended sequence towards the end that really dives into what the distinction is between people talking about black power and advocating for black power versus people at that time and presently advocating for white power and this false equivalency that exists in our culture where it's like, Oh, well mm. see this like white people want supremacy. Black people want supremacy. Both of those things are bad. And it like, it really exposes uh, the lie in that false equivalency in a way that I really have never seen elo like eloquated in, such a way before it's a really really powerful sequence i know the one you're talking about yeah and it's aided really strongly by uh like a bit of film history that i think is worth reminding people of mm. and i just the use of film history in this film is really interesting in general like you know spike lee uses both birth of a nation and gone with the wind in uh interesting ways uh throughout the film to make it clear that he's calling out not just you know, society and mm. politics, but also his own medium in a way that felt really provocative and interesting. Overall, I just, I think that, you know, the more that I learn about the movie, the more that I have a little bit of a problem with just because in fact, Noah, it doesn't hew very closely to the true story at all. Uh, there's major, major uh, deviations well, from yeah. it. A lot of the stuff yeah. where you're like, oh, there's no way this happened. It's like, oh, no, it didn't happen. That's why you think that. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, down to changing, like, when it even took place, like, the time periods of the stories are very different, and just, like, the legacy of the actual character who is being memorialized in a way with this film. Uh, his actual true life story is not nearly as... Uh, not, not the type of story that you think Spike Lee would probably uh, glamorize through film. So I think there's a lot of definitely questionable stuff in here. But overall, I think that it really, just for that alone, just for that like uh, final act of the film is just so, so strong. And the other thing that I really liked about it is that it kind of does this thing where it makes the bigotry of the clans people so kind of like, it almost reminds me of a Coen Brothers movie in a lot of ways where it's like, they're just like these bumbling idiots who are just like really terrible, but so dumb they get in their way. And it's like, it, you, it lulls you into this, ha ha ha, let's laugh at these people because they're just so dumb and we're so much better than them. And then it kind of ends in this gut punch way of, of really just taking the air out of the room and saying like, you mm -hmm. know what? Uh, we all like to like lull ourselves into this kind of complacency of like, well, these people are just old and dumb and stupid, so we don't need to take them seriously. And then it really reminds you at the end that there's still serious ramifications for how they think and what yeah. they what they want yeah. the world to be like. And uh, it's easy to lose track of that. Uh, and I thought that that the construction of the film in that way was pretty brilliant. Um yeah, because I feel like it really mirrors our own reality mm. with these types of situations. I, I also have to say, it was a real treat watching this movie with the German audience, um, mm. because the, Ger oh, okay. the, the the Germans have particular reasons to um, to have a different reaction than Americans would 
to portraying white supremacist and neo-Nazi and fascistic uh, viewpoints or ideologies. Like, especially that one scene where Adam Driver is being, like, really directly challenged by this one clan member who's trying to get him to slip up uh, and admit that he's a cop or admit that he's Jewish. Uh, and he starts talking about, take the Holocaust. Never happened. And he goes into the whole, like, Holocaust never happens. You could just feel like, I could feel half the, the theater around me just go, go sort of, <gasps> and, like, tense up. <laughs> like, Holocaust, yeah, big Jewish conspiracy. <gasps> <laughs> That's that's interesting because like in my audience, which obviously wasn't German, um, <laughs> really? it, it was a pretty mixed race group. Uh, but I, f you could hear a lot of like smug, self satisfied laughing uh, at various points in the movie, just about how oh yeah, look at that, like look at those dumb people, or like oh they didn't mm. know that Trump was coming, ha ha ha. And then it just like at the end, like the way this film ends, it just kind of really just gives all of those people like just a gut punch where it's like oh no like you this kind of self-satisfied laughter that you have is really the problem uh because look at what that condescension rots in our lives you know yeah so i thought that was pretty powerful a lot of people are hammering the ending uh and saying that it's inappropriate and exploitative and just i, I won't get into exactly what happens but you can look it up online if you want to uh, before seeing the film. I think that because of that experience of the audience and just the experience that I'm talking about, I think that it really was useful and it had an artistic point to it. It wasn't just being shocking or um, manipulative because I think that the point was really to show that like, oh yeah, we're all laughing, we're having a good time, but no, this is really serious and uh, you guys who are sitting laughing along are kind of part of the problem. Yeah. No, the theater the theater I was in was dead silent when the credits finally started to roll. Well, dead silent. yeah, I mean, the mine too. <laughs> I was, I can't, I'm sure all theaters are dead silent after that. Okay, well, it seems like I have that to look forward to. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a rollicking good time that will leave you feeling terribly afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Well, no, I just... It's it's funny what you were saying, Alex. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded that uh, if there's one thing the history of the United States has shown us is that stupidity and cruelty, unfortunately, are not mutually exclusive. Um, so <laughs> yes, that's, that's uh, yeah. So uh, great. I am looking forward to another incisive Spike Lee joint. So should be fun when I finally get around to it. Yeah, and I think that for anybody who wants to watch the film, I would recommend watching the film first, and then I would recommend looking up the Boots Riley critique of the film that's available online. Mm -hmm. Boots Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You, had a lot of really critical things to say about the movie and Spike Lee's choice to glorify police officers and exposing kind of the truth of what the police officers in a place like Colorado Springs were doing at that time when the movie takes place. And also the recent allegations that Spike Lee has uh, been producing propaganda material for the New York uh, City Police Department. Uh, it, it's all covered in there. And I think that it's, it's a useful kind of corollary to the film just mm -hmm. to add more context to what you see on screen in a way that kind of, it doesn't negate it, but it does complicate it in a way that I found interesting mm -hmm. at the very least. Cool. Well, so what have you been watching, Alex? Okay. Um, well, I've been seeing a lot of stuff. I, I, the most recent film I saw 
was a 50th anniversary screening of 2001 A Space Odyssey on a unrestored 70 millimeter print. This is a print that was created from the negatives of the original print um, without any kind of restoration process. So no color correcting, no special effects editing, nothing like that. So it's like as close to the experience of seeing 2001 in 1968 as possible. Um, and I had never seen the film before, and that was, and I saw it like that in IMAX. Did they make the experience even more original by having critics, stor- critics storm out of the theater going, what the hell's going on? <laughs> well, no, this was, this was like a Thursday night screening, so it was just yeah. me, and literally, though, if you don't know, there is a long intermission in this film, so mm-hmm. uh, I got an opportunity to get to know my audience a little bit, and it was just 18 of us, uh, so, and we were all pretty motivated to be there. In fact, one of the people in the audience was like, yeah, I, he was complaining about how the movie theater hadn't really advertised that this was going to happen, and so he was like, yeah, I was was looking up uh screen times to see the happy time murder uh movie and then i saw this and i was like oh never mind i'm definitely gonna go see this instead (laughs) what a transition (laughs) wow yeah what is sophie's choice there Um, (laughs) yeah i know right (laughs) so So, uh watch the unrestored version so are we talking so like pretty much the opposite of the star wars special editions here (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah that is exactly okay. right it's the opposite of the star wars special All right. um, and it was created with the help of christopher nolan um which i thought oh. was interesting that they chose to include that in the advertisement for the film oh wait wait for the reprint <laughs> try to be like yeah the reprint he like supervised the reprint process oh apparently. that doesn't surprise me at all like he's been no well because he yeah he loves kubrick and he also loves uh like film as as not just a medium but as an art form a number of filmmakers have sort of formed like almost a sort of collective trying to like preserve it like him, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Tarantino, I think Martin Scorsese as well. And a couple of others, whose names are escaping me right now, but he's been one of yeah, the there's biggest, like a big he's been one of the biggest as... advocates for like, preserving and maintaining yeah there's like a whole documentary that he features prominently in Mm. from a couple years ago that i think is still on netflix i forget what it's called though uh but yeah so that was a really uh insane experience i had never seen it before and i think that that was i'm so happy that i waited that long because seeing it in that in that format on that screen in 70 millimeters was just an outstanding experience i feel like i can't honestly talk about it on the podcast because it just was such an overwhelming uh, thing that i'm still trying to process the sequence where the ape discovers the use of the the jawbone as a weapon that for me Mm -hmm. is like one of my defining experiences of like this is the core of what makes a great scene and a great movie like it's one of my all-time favorite moments in any film yeah i think that it probably has like maybe seven of those moments in the movie like that's how Mm. great a film it is just like every scene it's just something incredible like just even like such like small details are masterful like the choice to build tension by in, instead of using a score he just has like they're they're in their spacesuits and he just has like heavy breathing on the mic and then the sound of the oxygen getting pumped into their suit and no other sound in the whole uh, in the whole theater like just that choice is so it's like so minimal but it's so expert it's such like an incredible it just builds and builds and builds the tension in such a really really effective way um and it's you know i mean it's just so usually in a scene 
sequence like that, you'll have like the music slowly rising and rising and rising and rising. But this, it's just like he really trusts the audience to just really like connect with the sensory experience of what's happening on screen. And it's so much more effective than any like sequence of tension that I can remember uh, that uses like music and other things to kind of like help with that so and that's like number like 67 on the list of impressive things in that movie <laughs> it like it genuinely made me like many of my favorite films less it's like oh never mind <laughs> like i don't know how i could watch interstellar again having seen this movie because it's so like so many of the great things about interstellar are clearly just cribbed from 2001 um but yeah it's and it's just such an influential film and then it makes me think like how stanley kubrick is just an incredible genius of cinema that he could have made like he just makes genre defining films every like for like his whole career just like you think of like what's the most epic horror film it's like the shining is if not that it's at least on the level of like in that conversation like a political satire film you have dr strangelove mm-hmm. like with the sci-fi film like this like 2001 is clearly just like the most pinnacle of that so it's just like incredible um it makes me excited to get i i don't i haven't seen a ton of his work and i get i'm excited to dive in deeper yeah um, well full metal jacket and war movies is also I mean, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, exactly. Full Metal Jacket has its critics, but a lot of people would consider that one of the best Vietnam slash war and soldiers experiences movies ever made. Yeah, so so 2001 A Space Odyssey has definitely kind of like overpowered my brain and I'm having a hard time thinking about any other movies <laughs> lately <laughs> in response to it. <laughs> but I'm just so, so grateful that I did not make the choice to see it like on my laptop on Netflix when I was in college because I almost did it a couple of times and I'm so happy that I saw it like this instead. I mean, I was watching it with uh, like some of the people in the audience they were talking about in during intermission how they've seen this movie like four or five times and they were seeing details in it that they had never seen before watching it in that format. Mm. And these are people who are like in their 40s and 50s, you know, like who grew up with the mm. film. So I thought that was it made it extra special. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, unfortunately by the time that you guys hear this, uh, you will have no ability to watch it because it was only playing for one week uh, in commemoration with its 50th anniversary. Uh, so sorry, but um, I'm really happy that I got to see it like that. <laughs> yeah, um, that is like without question, it's like one of my favorite films of all time, certainly in my top 10. I honestly wasn't sure what you would think of it just because it's so because I, I mean... I look at like some of your favorite movies like The Social Network or Broadcast News which is so character driven. And and 2001 has a bit of that too, but it's such a very sensory experience compared to that other kind of filmmaking. So I was kind of curious to see what your reaction to it would be. Um yeah, it really does to me like stretches the potential of the film medium. I mean, this is a film that like has the goes from prehistoric apes to a star child by the end of it with all this crazy stuff in between and yet still feels coherent somehow um yeah well and there's just so much in the movie just even from like a technical standpoint that mm -hmm. 
you know, 50 years later, I'm sitting here saying, how did they do this? Like, it's just so incredibly impressive, just like from a, like from a technical perspective and from like a thematic perspective and the writing and the bold choices of how to construct that narrative and like the way that we like shift point of view characters so consistently and just, it's just so much is, it's just such an incredible film. I I could honestly talk about it for hours. Now it's, it's one of those prime examples of how really, really great art it really is ageless and timeless. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't age. You don't look back and be like, oh, well, it was good at the time, but it doesn't look that good now. Like, there are tons of movies like that. Um, but 2001 is most definitely not yeah. one of them. It's still, like, even on a purely aesthetic level, holy crap, it looks amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's no, like, Attack of the Clones, but it is really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the gold standard. Uh Yeah. She's talk about a movie that hasn't aged well. Have you seen that movie lately? No, <laughs> I don't think I've seen it since it came out. Um, uh, but back to two thousand one for a second. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to just also remark that I know, and some people have remarked this about Kubrick's entire career that there's this kind of cool detachment, like almost clinical detachment to his movies. And for me, what I love about that in two thousand one is it doesn't feel like he's disconnected from what he's seeing. It's more like he's giving you the viewer, the space to make your own conclusions, to mm-hmm. feel the things that you want to feel. Yeah. And I feel like that's really the distinction for me about the detachment in that, in this, in this mm-hmm. movie that I think, you know, I think people see and like, Oh, Kubrick's like, Cole, he doesn't understand humanity. And I think really what he's doing is he's, he's giving us a window in, to that yeah i would agree with that i mean i would not call this film cold or detached in any way for me it was like a very emotional experience throughout uh like a lot of anxiety a lot of tension a lot of (laughs) you know confusion and and just a lot and then it just like it plunges so much deeper beyond just like base level emotions into really like profound ideas about like what it means to be human and what it means to have a purpose in the world and, you know, our limits to ourselves and our responsibilities to other people. And it's just got a lot in there. So <laughs> it's, it's got a lot of ideas and a lot of those ideas are embedded with an emotionality that I felt at least. Yeah. And within like sometimes just wordlessness movement and, you know, how a space station comes into frame or where a certain ape is placed in relation to others. Um, yeah, it's just, and it's incredibly patient film. Like, yeah. I was really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, <laughs> so, uh, what a surprise. Three white guys love 2001. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, no one ever told me how hot the, how hot Dave was, just saying. Here delay, uh, <laughs> space stud. Yeah. <laughs> I was really, I was really into him. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I can't take the smolder. I'm more of a homosexual myself. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on from that, why don't we? Um, really quick, I wanted to mention what I've been watching, which is maybe not, you know, like after 2001, maybe a little bit of a, a come down, but uh, I've been getting back into watching TV. Shocking, I know. Um, Yay! So I have a whole laundry list. Oh. Is it a TV show from like 2004 that you're watching? <laughs> uh, 
Well, it started in 2005, but I'm watching the la- the most the last season, which was 2012. <laughs> right now, uh, that show okay. is the thick of it. Um, I'm watching the final oh, okay. season right now, and um, I have kind of a whole laundry list of shows that I want to catch up with, like Atlanta and uh, Better Call Saul. But uh, that one, like, I really wanted to finish that because I started watching it last year, and I didn't quite like. I just like got wrapped up in watching films from last year for a while. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know this show, Noah. I've not heard of it. This is, uh, it was created by uh, a man you know very well, Armando Iannucci, who did Death of Stalin most recently. And um, and Veep. And Veep. A- and uh, In HBO. the Loop, which was uh, kind of a spinoff of The Thick of It, though it branched out into American politics. Because the, the show is really focused on British politics. And a lot of it is, is domestic issues. It's follows this one ministry that um, actually ends up getting renamed constantly. And there's a running joke in the, in the show about like, they're not even quite sure what they're like, what they officially do. Um, It seems to keep changing depending on the whims of the prime minister. Uh, But uh, Malcolm Tucker was introduced in the show played by Peter Capaldi, who is, who is so great just consistently. And so, so brutal just with the, the insults and, uh, and, and the, the the show is very much about insults uh, consistently, but I think what I like just when you have it coming from so many different angles, really everybody gets a chance to shine and everyone pretty much gets a chance to be put down, including Malcolm Tucker. There's just, there's a real kind of like equal opportunity to the cruelty on that show. <laughs> equal opportunity <laughs> um, sadism. It's a... <laughs> Yeah, and 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 also like does some really interesting things with camera movement. A lot of it is handheld, but depending on like depending on who's insulting whom, you'll get like really quick pans or 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 zooms on people, and it just really helps to amplify the humor. So it's not just like while it's so well written with the, this this crack team of writers that have worked with Yunuchi for a while, I also love the little the little touches as well that you can do, even like for like you know compared to like a big budget film like maybe this is like these are smaller budgeted episodes but what they're able to do with just like little camera movements really does help and goes a long way and um it's hilarious i just i love watching it even as it just continues to depress me about politics and our intentions in politics versus the actual realities of it hmm. so yeah it's got a pretty cynical take on politics uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think that's fair to say <laughs> But it is really funny. <laughs> I've not seen all of this show, but I've seen like large stretches of it over time. It was before it's all available on Hulu now, but before that it was kind of hard to find. You had to kind of pick it up in bits bits and pieces when you could. Um but In the Loop is one of my all time favorite comedies. I actually recently Same. put together my a list on Letterboxd of my favorite film comedy films from 2000 to 2009 and uh, favorite comedy films from 2010 to present mm. and uh, it is uh, ranked very very high yeah, in, in the, the loop was lists, an early so. bonding moment yeah. for Justin and I and our friendship and a thematic follow-up mm. to that by much of the same crew the death of Stalin is also my short list of best movies of this year so they've continued to do work that's very much in the same vein yeah definitely and veep is a oh that's great right veep on, t- on yeah, I've only seen smatterings of veep but anyone who is <laughs> I think it's especially to recommend for anyone who's a big fan of Buster and Arrested Development. <laughs> yes, Tony Hale's very good on it, but like so many people and are so good on that And so is Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
who's the star of Veep and excellent. Yes. The problem with British television is that there's so much of it and so much of it is great. Um, but uh, yeah, that is something that I, I've been really enjoying lately. Uh, it's been a nice change of pace from the more experimental documentaries that I have been watching previously. <laughs> so I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. Should we start? talking about crazy rich asian sure are we crazy enough to tackle such rich subject matter well we're definitely not rich enough that's for sure we're too um... poor to talk about this movie <laughs> <laughs> that's entirely possible well i just want to start by asking the two of you maybe the two of you might have a better idea than me because i don't i don't feel like i have the legal know-how to answer this but is it legal for this many beautiful people to be on screen <laughs> I think it should be a requirement for everybody. They managed to get Ocean's 8 made, so I imagine they had no problem with this movie. I mean, that's that's true as well, yeah. And I mean, Cape Blanchett and Ocean's 8 was worth, like, five beautiful people. <laughs> In all seriousness, like, I'm curious to hear, like, your what the two of you expected from this movie versus your actual experience of seeing I expected a fun, enjoyable rom-com, and, and that's what I got. I laughed out loud a lot watching the movie, and I felt all warm and fuzzy inside when it ended. So, yeah. Okay. I expected nothing from this movie because I don't typically like rom-coms that much. So I've learned that the best thing for me to do when approaching a rom-com is to come in with no expectations. So that way I'm not necessarily like disappointed or, uh, you know, have a mixed reaction where like I'm just unfair to it because it's just generally not the genre that I prefer. But I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, <laughs> I have maybe like a slightly uh, off-brand take in that, you know, the thing that I like most about this rom-com is that it's light on rom and light on com and heavy on, like, mother issues. <laughs> <laughs> less rom, less com, more mom. Exactly. Oh, it's more of a, well yeah, it's a mom movie more than anything else. They should have hired me to do the marketing for this film. <laughs> my Two of my favorite movies of the year are about, like, complicated mothers uh, and Tully and oh, uh, Hereditary. <laughs> so, you know, I think this kind of is a great uh, addition to that trilogy of 2018 <laughs> mother movies. mother trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Darren Aronofsky like, kicked it off last year. He like set, he threw down the gauntlet and these filmmakers really picked it up. I've never seen so many mothers. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, but that is truthfully what I liked most about this movie, which is everything yeah. to do with Michelle Yao's character. I thought that she was excellent, obviously. I actually just recently watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon for the first time because I've been watching all of Ang Lee's movies, uh, many of them for the first time. And it's so funny to watch her in that film versus in this one because she plays in a lot of ways, like in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, this kind of very repressed character who's never been able to like really have the life that she wishes she could have because of propriety and she's trying to counsel this younger woman who is more uh self-consumed and passionate and just kind of wants to go for what she really wants and what she knows that she needs and that that is almost the same plot as crazy rotations uh which i thought was pretty surprising i wasn't expecting that um but in both of those movies she's really she's good not mentoring anyone here no i mean 
But, like, if she were to have, like, a treetop fight scene <laughs> with uh, Constant Wu at some point, like, it wouldn't feel super out okay, of place. that would have made the movie better. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I was really surprised by this, those parallels. But, uh, yeah. it, but like I said, I think that it's, you know, I think that Constance Wu does a great job in the role of the lead character. I think that the character herself is not robustly developed or I think that um, Constance Wu really has to kind of flesh her out a little bit in her mannerisms and in her approach to scenes. I, I feel that way about like all of the cast. Well, but I say that because I feel like the only character that that's not true about mm -hmm. is Michelle Yao. I think that she has on the page, she has a lot of interesting nuances to her. And I think that Michelle Yao then plays that to the hilt mm -hmm. and really just like exposes how great she is. So in a way, it's like one of these things that I run into a lot where it's like a B plus movie with an A plus character in it. And in this case, I think that that's what I would call Crazy Rich Asians. It's like a B plus rom-com with an A plus mother character in it who just like is rules every scene that she's in many times without saying a word which is really impressive I, I meant that more in the sense that like if i were to say what i think this one's biggest strength is my answer would not be the screenplay it would be the cast and how they're able to like fill in the gaps between what the screenplay and the filmmaker doesn't try to tell us about these characters yeah i think that's fair justin what did you think of the movie i really liked it a lot this doesn't happen with every movie but there was just something about I think I I really admired this film's confidence to be what it wanted to be. And I knew pretty much from like the first scene that, okay, I'm going to enjoy pretty much every minute of this. <laughs> I think what surprised me, I had heard this was in development actually for a while. I want to say like several years ago. Um, yeah. And so I was really curious to see what, it, I had not read the book. I, I tend to avoid trying to read a book before I see a movie because I don't want it to affect my experience with it. But I knew it was like a very popular book. I had some inkling that it might deal with like a wealthy family in Singapore, but about like wealth in Singapore in general. I think what surprised me about watching this movie was the sense of mystery of like most of the characters here, whether you're talking about Michelle Yao or even Constance Wu's character. There's this real sense of like there's a sense of a long game that these characters are playing. And that it's established kind of early on when we see that <laughs> Constance Wu is this economics professor and she deals in game theory. And so, you know, and like, maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's not set up in the most subtle way, but it's like, you know, that's going to be informing what you, what you see from here on out. And a lot of the interactions between Wu and Yao are kind of like, chess matches or mahjong matches i guess and it's not always like to me it's it's there's something very calculated about the things that these characters say they're not always saying what they mean but they're doing it kind of with an ulterior motive and it's i think those motives are very sincere um but that made the mm -hmm. movie continually interesting to me to try to guess what these characters were getting at and what they were trying to get out of each other and what they were trying to discover about each other huh that's interesting i didn't I didn't see it as nearly as subtle as that, honestly. I thought that most of what they were saying was kind of what they were saying in most of those scenes, at least to me. I actually found myself wishing that Wu's background, and especially like the type of economics that she, special that she specialized in and her intellect, I kind of wish that that had been in play more often in the film, 
than just in that final scene with the mother. Like, I felt like they could have done to emphasize that a bit more, and that that would have made the film stronger from a character standpoint. Yeah, well, I mean, I... I don't mind that because for me, it was pretty believable that she's only there for a couple of days. It seems like it's pretty much like a long weekend that she's at these people's homes in Singapore. And oh, in that's that, true. And, it's not that long. No. And in that time, it's a very like shocking and overwhelming experience that she's having on like a day to day basis where she's like in this city that she's never been to before in this culture that she feels like she yeah. should probably have some affinity for. And yet she is a major out outsider within and then she's like bombarded by this like unbelievable wealth that she was not prepared to experience uh and just like she went from being like oh i can't believe that my boyfriend is super super rich to then like shortly thereafter finding out oh he's actually the most rich person in all of singapore (laughs) it's like so it's like even a higher level of rich than she was prepared for so she's really taken aback and kind of overwhelmed for a lot of the first half of this movie in a way that i found pretty plausible i think that if she was also being like super machiavellian in those moments it would seem mm. a bit hard to believe yeah because she yeah. plays as very as like a very authentic like accessible person and sure. i think most people in that situation would be kind of overwhelmed <laughs> at first and then it's really when she finally gets pushed a little bit too far by michelle yao's character that she really finds it in her to fight back and kind of re- come back to herself in a way which i thought was pretty strong a pretty strong choice yeah, and I and I do want to like just say that to to me it was pretty clear that these kinds of games were happening early on, like the first introduction between Michelle Yao, uh, Eleanor, and Constance Wu was Rachel, um, where you know she kind of meets her and pretty much just like during the conversation, Eleanor just starts like checking on the kitchen staff and like still still mm-hmm. you know she's not as directly engaged. She is still somewhat engaged, but she's clearly like. She's going on to other things, and to me, it's like very calculated on her part. It's not just—it's not oh, her reacting yeah, but... to Rachel as much as she's not going to make this easy, no matter who her son is with. So I would agree, but I think that it was really transparent, Lisa. <laughs> and I thought, and I, what I liked about the <laughs> yeah. movie is that it let Rachel say right away, like as she as that scene sure. ends, you're like, oh, maybe she doesn't realize how much she doesn't like her, and then she walks out and she's like, so yeah. your mom hates me, and she's like, okay, so she is smart, she does know what's happening, and mm-hmm. I, I appreciated that because I thought that they made it extremely clear to the audience what was happening in yeah. that scene. Yeah, my point is that I think that there's a huge amount of calculation on Eleanor's part. Uh, that Rachel eventually matches, I think, at the end. And even in the moment when that scene on the staircase, which I think is one of my favorite scenes, where at one point Rachel has to actually take a step, like Eleanor actually approaches her and Rachel has to kind of like take a step down on the staircase. Yeah. it's All these things are not being said, but it's obvious, like, yeah, it's obvious to us as the audience and probably to Rachel what's happening, mm. but it's all like, none of it is necessarily in the dialogue. Even when she says to her, like, you will not be enough, she frames it like she's saying anyone would not be enough, but with the extra. No, that's that's what you took from it. I took it from you specifically won't be enough. She's but my point is how she frames it, though. She doesn't like. No, because she says, like, it was very hard. 
Like, cause she's like, it was very hard. I didn't think I would be enough. And then she says, you would not, will not be enough. <laughs> like it's specifically like, I, like I struggled and I was able to get through it. You are so much worse than me that you will never be able to do what I had to do in that situation because you're not going to be enough. Like that's, I thought that was, it didn't feel like she was like saying something generally in a way where she purposely was targeting her in like a passive aggressive way. It felt like she, in that scene, I think that's like no, the think, most aggressive scene in the mo- movie. Really? Because that's that felt what like she's the been most doing pointed, the whole time. But that's the scene in the movie where she like puts all her cards on the table and it just like very, very like straightforwardly says you're not enough. But again, she frames it like she's talking about her own experience or about the experience of someone like this. Yeah, but she says like the 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 word is you will never be enough. Yeah. That's like the clincher line, but it's like in context with everything else that she's been talking about. Yeah, but her story like what she's talking about is like how she triumphed mm-hmm. over those expectations and then she says but and it and you think oh she's saying it almost maybe she's being encouraging maybe she's like connecting with her like they both ha- came from this same sort of perspective initially. And then at the end, it's like, no, she's not being nice to her. You will. She specifically says you're not going to be enough. My point is, I think that it's meant to have multiple meanings. I do think she means her specifically, but it's not framed that way. You could see how it could be taken to mean like this is the experience of someone like Rachel or even like Eleanor herself who had her own experiences with this. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm misremembering the scene because in my memory, the scene, she is explicit and it's not like an ambiguous statement that she makes. She does like she does say you and I do think she means you, but she's not coming right out and saying it's it's somewhere on that line. I think it's it, and I think it's a moment meant to get in her head. Sure. But I thought that it was more explicit than that. But like I said, we could just be taking different things away from the scene. I mean, if you read ambiguity in the scene and I didn't, then that means probably there is ambiguity in the scene. I mean, Noah, did you see that scene as ambiguous at all? I mean, I sort of I I, I sort of took that scene straightforward as well. But what just struck me is, you know, going back to what Justin was saying, uh, how something like the step is the step back is used as a pure visual representation of their relationship and of the dynamic between that relationship uh, or earlier in the kitchen when she starts attending to, to the rest of the chefs as like a subtle visual cue as well. Yeah. So I have a, so I have a question for you guys. Um, do you like how this movie ended? Cause for me, I'm kind of going back and forth about like, I, I really liked the final Mahjong scene and thought that would be a pretty excellent way of just walking off and ending the movie. And then all of a sudden, at the very, very end, you have this sort of like very traditional rom-com ending where he just comes on the plane and, you know, proposes to her in this way that felt kind of like, I don't know, it felt like it was kind of of a different movie because the movie that I was watching didn't feel like a, an actual rom-com. It felt like a, like the movie that I saw was like this tense drama between a, a disapproving mother-in-law and her would-be daughter-in-law. Um, so it felt kind of out of place, but I know that that that's the movie that I liked that wasn't necessarily all of what the movie was. So I'm willing to give it that. So how did it work for you guys? Well, I think that was a case of like, I knew going in the movie was going to have something like that. So it's like, there was no surprise and nothing for me to be disappointed about because it's exactly what I figured the movie would do. I also kind of like the fact that it's not just like romantic smoothness. He's also trying to awkwardly get around people putting their luggage up on a plane, which having done that a thousand times in my life, yeah, 
that really hit home. Like, I, I thought that was a nice little touch to make it just a little bit fresh. It's still very tropey. It's still very cliched. But it was just, it was a little... It was like it was, a classic, like, Hugh Grant moment. Yeah, you know? it, was, it was a little different. And I liked that. I liked the fact that it was a little different, but still, like, oh, happy-feely, we got the perfect happy ending, <laughs> etc. Yeah, I mean, I certainly felt like we needed something... It was very traditional, and I guess in keeping with some of the... Some of the things that happened, like, earlier in the film... It it was an interesting choice just because I felt like the scene where he proposes to her the first time, I don't know, maybe felt a little bit redundant to me. I guess it's I guess it's more official at, at that point and like we know that he has his mother's don't we? Like we know he has he has his mother's approval at that point. This on the plane. Yeah. yeah. Well, because there's the scene where he goes to her room and you don't know what happens, but you sure. know that he does that and then he shows up on the plane with his mom's ring. And it right. tells you everything you need to know about how that conversation went. And we do get a scene later where there's a little moment between Rachel and Eleanor. Um, but I kind of like that it's not really fussed over. Um, yeah, not like I this, did like that. You know, there's not like this cathartic mm. scene where they reconcile. Um, no, it's it's like a knowing look. And then the next time they cut back, she's been disappeared completely. I thought it was yeah. pre- I really appreciated that. Because <laughs> it's not like, oh, yeah. she wet, she like bested her at the mahjong table, and now <laughs> she has this respect for her, and they're good friends. It's like, no, they no. she still doesn't like this lady, but <laughs> she respects her now, yeah. and that's and that's all she's willing to give up. And that's I appreciated that. Yeah. She lost the mahjong game, and then she dissipated into dust. <laughs> and blew away with the wind. I just want to throw this out here as while we're still before we move on from this movie. This is clearly a movie that is reaching people, uh, and that is resonating people. And it is like it was it was being billed as this like big moment, much like Black Panther or Wonder Woman in, in being this studio release with an all Asian cast. Um but it looks like it's holding that as well. Like it's actually turning into one of the major events of the summer. Do you guys have any? Do you have any thoughts on that? Having seen the movie now, do you think that's well deserved? Yeah, so it's it's super exciting. I think that it's I think it's well earned because I think at the end of the day, like this is a it's a fun movie. It's a light movie. There's a lot of you know we didn't really talk that much about Peek Lin and her family. That Peek Lin played by Aquafina. I think she oh, really she was the highlight of every the scene that me. she's in. I think she's way better here than in Ocean's Eight. Not her fault. She just has more to do here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah she just true. has more to do here, and she gets to capitalize on it. She, like, makes the most of every scene. I mean, it uses Ken Jeong, who is not a person that I tend to like in things. <laughs> I really liked him on the show Community because he got to really subvert his persona and just got to be, like, a sad, kind of pathetic guy all the time. <laughs> but in, in <laughs> movies, he's always, like, this big, over-the-top performer that I tend to not mm-hmm. like. Uh, and I thought he was pretty good here. I think they used him just I the right him. amount. I yeah. And the, I thought that that whole family added like a really fun element. I wasn't super into the creepy brother and I found out <laughs> that um he's actually a character that's not in the book. I have a friend who read the book and one uh-huh. of his big complaints was that they inserted that guy into the story mm-hmm. and I kind of could see why. I don't really get that choice, but <laughs> overall, I think it's a really it's a fun, it's a light movie. It's got just enough emotional pathos embedded into it, mm-hmm. but it's also got like this kind of rich lifestyle porn aspect to it that is going to bring a lot of people back and it and on top of that it has this kind of you know uh, david chen who's a podcaster for the slash film cast he has been speaking at length about how important this movie is to him as a second generation immigrant and an asian american 
because of not just specifically the representation aspect of it, but also because he feels like it's the first time that he's seen on screen the distinction made between Asians and Asian Americans and how those groups yeah. of people are so different in a lot of really interesting mm. ways. And that it meant a lot to him that this film like really explores those differences in a in a real purposeful way um mm-hmm. and i and i think it's important for us to mention that as well in terms of like why this movie has merit and is of good quality mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and as much as as much as the film does have like it does not pull any punches when it comes to its opulence <laughs> um yeah. Uh, spared no expense. Uh, this like <laughs> this movie lives up to its title. Let's be honest. Um, in spite of all that, like yeah, there's that, and like yeah, it's kind of it's appealing to watch for sure. I don't think to me that's not what like really that was not at the core of what made this movie so good. That was all there. It's all very fluffy and enjoyable. Mm. Um, but I do think uh, I do think the family dynamics and. And I yeah, I think also those differences like you mentioned between um between Asian and Asian Americans, I think that that's also a big part of it. Obviously, I would love to see more movies made about Asian families in other countries or in America who maybe are not of this social class. Uh that would be really interesting and I'd love <laughs> to see that. And I've seen some, they all happen to be films from Asian countries. Um but it'd be nice to see some in the American studio system as well. Uh, so time will tell on that one. Yeah. Like one last thing for me is just mm-hmm. how did the infidelity subplot work for you guys? I get why one reviewer that I read referred to it as like something popping out of another movie. Um, Cause it did feel like that. Yeah. It's apparently developed much more in the book as you would expect. And it feels a lot more integrated into the story, but as it's presented in the movie, well, Justin, what do you think? You know, I I found that it I maybe it does feel somewhat separate. I think thematically, it's it's related to the main conflict in that it's about this rift because it kind of involves that character Astrid dealing with that like growing up in such a rich family, but feeling like she's made mistakes in her relationship, but that not necessarily being the cause for this rift between her and her husband. Um, and coming to this kind of maturity about that. But we don't see enough of the relationship to get a sense of that. Like, we we see almost we nothing. See so, and it's and it's more told to us. And yeah. Like, so I think part of that is the screenplay where it's like... Well, and it's really it's cliche, too. Yeah. It almost seems like she's the, the, the female version of the leading man, and where she's also, like, self-conscious about the family and the wealth and like yeah well i think that the parallels are really clear between this couple and the and the main the main couple in the film where it's kind of like it's like they're by the grace of god go i it's like the like the foreboding kind of foreshadowing of things to come for them in a worst case scenario and Mm -hmm. i think that the reason why you keep it in the movie is to show the distinction between like what rachel has that astrid's husband doesn't have like the Mm -hmm. reason why they're wrong about rachel is that she isn't astrid's husband she doesn't have a weak character uh at the center of herself she is like strong and resilient and she believes in herself in a way that would make it so that way this world won't crush her in the way that it did astrid's husband so like i get why it's there but i think for that to work better in the film 
they really should have tried to develop Astrid's husband's character more and yeah. make him feel like a person that could be more directly paralleled to Rachel in a way where the contrast would then be clear. You know, instead it's like he's just like this cartoonish caricature of like a weak man and yeah. who does all of the things you would expect a weak man did. Like the only thing he doesn't do is like slap her, which I'm glad he doesn't, but that's like the <laughs> only part of this storyline that doesn't happen as you would expect it would. Because yeah. uh, it's like, oh, that's what weak men do. Like they come, they get upset that their woman makes more money than them and is more popular than them and matters more and then they sleep with somebody else to make them feel good and then they usually like beat the woman at some point like that's usually what a weak man does like in just, these stories just within the family itself i feel like he had some of the fewest lines of dialogue like just trying to do a rough word count in my head it's just like it's one scene where he's like i hate that you hide money from like that you hide your spending from me and she's like i do it because i love you and then there's another scene where he's like the, the business is failing and then in that same scene she finds out that he's like at least you could have even spaced out the scenes a little bit so you don't find that, that out that she's he's cheating on her in that exact same scene yeah. but and then it's just like and then they break up like so there's basically three scenes maybe four in the whole movie with him and yeah. and she's the center of all of those scenes so he's really not a, I'm a sure character. he's visible in the background in some moments like so what I do want to say, though, is is that I think that Gemma Chan is really good in those moments, and she sells the hell yeah. out of them. And I think she does the absolute best with what she can, given that I don't yeah. think that that plotline is very strong. Even just, like, when she sits down next to her husband, you can tell that, like, the things have not been going well between them, and probably have not for a long time. Just in the way she, like, sits down and, like, holds her body. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's really good. Yes. Um, there's no shortage of... <laughs> talented actors in this that is certainly not if there are problems with it that's not one of them yeah yeah i would agree with that i mean even that guy like he i don't think he was a bad actor no i think that he did a really great job like being present in those scenes i think that he just had no he just didn't have a character to work with you know he's very and he's very much intended to be kind of discarded really quick i just wanted to ask did you guys recognize the actress who played Araminta, the woman whose whose wedding it is. Oh no, no who is she? Uh, that's Sonoya Mizuno, who was Kyoko in Ex Machina. Oh wow! Oh no way! Yeah, wow. It's I only, a very different role. Like I recognized yes. her name when I like when the credits came. I'm like Sonoya Mizuno. That sounds really familiar, and I couldn't think what it was. Then I looked her up, and I'm like, that's a, oh. that's a great six degrees bit of trivia there. No amazing dance sequence this time. You know, I mean, maybe it was because I felt like... like her character had sunglasses <laughs> on in nearly every scene. Maybe that's why. Well, this what I liked about the the couple that's getting married is that the movie was like, yeah, we know you don't care about these people, so we're just going to even make the whole wedding about them, about the characters <laughs> that you actually care about. It was like they're giving their vows, and the camera is just having like this parallel scene in the background between Rachel and and her boyfriend, mm. uh, played by Harry Golding, who was great, by the way. I thought he was very charming, and yeah. like he didn't have to do very much, but everything he did was great. It's crazy that it's like his first acting role. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was a TV presenter before this, right. so they apparently had a really hard time uh, getting that uh, casting that role. They spent like a year trying to cast it, and they finally settled on him. So. But I think he did a great job. Yeah. But yeah, I just I really liked the like I feel like a lot of lesser movies would would feel the need to give you the wedding scene 
and like respect the couple that are getting married and this movie's like no we know you don't care so we're just going to keep the camera on our characters the whole time <laughs> and then I they mean, have this know. like beautiful scene where they're not talking but they're saying everything they need to say across a church from each other and it's such an interesting choice i really liked that yeah and i love the kind of contrast in that scene between like the very organic nature of this setup um with how much money like obviously how artificial it 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 is yeah in terms of the yeah. construction like i really like that that touch yeah um, yeah no i'm assuming that your wedding in germany you flooded the church right that's well of course <laughs> i mean like that's what you do yeah yeah okay <laughs> well Get the old roman aqueducts pumping man oh, <laughs> when that started i was like but that dress probably costs like ten million dollars, and you're gonna ruin it before like, the wedding like, starts. What is happening? Like on a purely visual level, I did think that scene was really, really amazingly done. Um, like the yes, the visuals and the use of music, uh, and the moment they chose for silence, I was like, "Ooh, that's this is kind of hitting me." Even though it's about characters that I don't give a shit about. Yeah, I would agree. It's like, I kind of wish they'd use that on a different scene. Speaking of music, I thought that the for anybody who doesn't know, it's actually in a couple of articles out there. Uh, John M. Chu released a letter that he wrote to Coldplay to get them to release the song Yellow. So that way they could do a Cantonese version of it uh, for the film. And it like plays over the closing uh, sequence and then the end credits. Uh, and it's a really, really moving uh, letter that he wrote just about how the term yellow was used in such a derogatory fashion towards him when he was younger and how it was like this racial slur that haunted him for a long time and how it was so important for him to be able to use their song in a really subversive way mm. to close the film. Uh, and I thought that not wow. even knowing any of that, I thought that it was a really beautiful like choice. And I think the song in the Cantonese version really works well. It's, it's interesting how distinct, how easily identifiable it is even when you don't know the words that they're saying uh because what? that you know, song to me at least is like very famous that's true what? no i i loved i loved the way that song fit with the moment and with the way it was being filmed but knowing but now like yeah, knowing this I, background i want to go watch it again yeah i thought it was i thought it was beautiful on its face and then as you said knowing the background behind it makes it even yeah, more meaningful ma I, I gotta so. watch the movie again now damn <laughs> Yeah, I encourage you to check out that letter. You could just, if you just Google uh, John M. Chu, Yellow, Coldplay, Letter, some combination of that, you'll be able to find it. They had a couple of songs that they, like, did Chinese versions of, uh, like Material Yeah, Girl. well, because apparently there's, like, a thing where, like, Cantonese pop, where they take American or Western music, pop music, and then translate it into Cantonese, and it's I very popular. I think that's super cool, because I, I, I get to play spot yeah. the song, even though I can't recognize the lyrics. <laughs> All right, folks, let's talk about where we can find everybody. Noah, why don't we start with you? Where can we find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I do all sorts of writing, mostly film reviews, but other stuff mixed in as well, on my blog at France Noir. That's F-R-A-N-C-N-O-I-R dot blogspot dot com. Excellent. And you, Alex? Uh, you can find me over at Twitter on at Media Thinkings, and also at Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. Uh, speaking of comedies, I recently put together my 25 favorite comedies of 2000 to 2009, and my 25 favorite comedies from 2010 to present. You can go take a look at those lists up on Letterboxd. Also, you could follow me as I comb through the back catalog of Ang Lee. I've been watching all of his films and really liking it. Yes. Uh, so you can see what I think about all of those films over there, too. You could also check out our show page at Cinema Joe's on Twitter and uh, talk to me over there, too. Great. Thank you for that plug. As for myself, 
Uh, you can find me at the Cinemaverick on Letterboxd and also my website, cinemaverick.com. I am currently working on an article uh, doing my 2017 retrospective uh, because I'm notoriously late on everything. Uh, but I still want to get it. This done. is earlier than last year, so you know it is. It is significantly <laughs> earlier, and so you should be proud of yourself. So currently doing my favorite performances of 2017, which has not been easy to narrow down. It never is, but uh, this this past year especially. So look for that soon. And if you're in the mood to you know walk down memory lane about 2017, might I recommend the talented David Ehrlich's uh, top 25 video of 2017? I recently rewatched it the other day, and it's just excellent. He's notorious for doing a great job with those year-end videos. So if you finally caught up on those, you should check out that video. Uh, it's available on Vimeo, um, or just Google David Ehrlich and 20 top 25 of 2017. Yeah, I'm always so impressed by those because I feel I'm just watching like how much time did it take for him to find like the perfect clips to juxtapose, you know, with each other. Yeah. Um, well, he's he's yeah. already started that. I think it was like two months ago that he showed that he had already started making the 2018 video. So Excellent. it's it's a process. All right. Well, for the Cinema Joes, this is Justin signing off. being facetious. Meryl Streep would have made this movie much worse. Well, I don't know about that. Well, I mean, you know, what are we talking about? I don't know what role <laughs> she would have played. Anyway. <laughs>